Well, most of you by now, I'm sure, have heard of the recent passing of Dr. Charles Stanley. And whether you're a fan of Dr. Stanley's preaching or not, there's no denying that he has had a tremendous influence on American Christianity now for many, many decades. And ultimately, that's what leadership is. It's influence. And Stanley became well-known for teaching through a series of what he called 30 life principles, but no doubt uh, the life principle he became most known for and the one that was most often quoted uh, in light of his passing was this one, obey God and leave the consequences to Him. In other words, just be faithful to the Lord and whatever the Lord chooses to do with your faithfulness, just place that in His sovereign hands. Over the past few months, we've been teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, and last week in chapter 10, uh, Paul taught us how a faithful, godly leader responds to criticism in a way that glorifies God. His leadership as an apostle was being questioned uh, by these false teachers who were impressive on the outside but wicked to the core uh, on the inside. And here in chapter 11, uh, Paul is going to show us the heart of a faithful godly leader. Now, any time over the years that we've taught through a passage that may speak to leadership, uh, what I've noticed is sometimes there's a temptation to disconnect from that message and say, well, this isn't relevant for me. This doesn't really apply to my life because I'm not in any formal position of leadership in the church or in the home, my company, or whatever the case is. But again, let me remind you, leadership ultimately is about influence, not position. And so because that is true, then everybody in the room has been granted a measure of influence or leadership in some area of your life. And so the question this morning is not if, in fact, you are a leader. The answer is yes to that. The question is, are you leading in such a way that is bringing glory to God and good to others? And the foundation for that type of leadership starts with character, not with competency. It starts in the heart, not in the hands. And so, let's look together at chapter 11. We're going to start off in verses 1 through 6 this morning in a message titled, What to Look for in a Leader. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning verse 1, says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, and if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough." Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, for even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. And so in walking uh, through this passage this week and uh, sharing with you today, I want you to zero in on here in chapter 11, uh, three characteristics of a godly leader. And again, because God has granted you some measure of influence in life, you are a leader. So the question is, are you a godly leader? And so three characteristics of godly leaders here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The first one I want you to see is this, is that godly leaders are faithful to protect others. I confessed to you a few weeks ago that if I had written the book of 2 Corinthians, it in fact would have been the shortest book in all the Bible because out of sheer frustration, I would have simply wrote these words, you're dead to me, right? 
Like so much of what Paul is writing in First and Second Corinthians is correction for things he's already taught them. And I would just wrote back and said, what's wrong with you? You should know better. I taught you better. I modeled this better. But Paul's love for them is so deep that his love is marked by a patience. Uh, Paul's no longer with them physically, but Paul loves them so much that he said, I'm no longer with you physically, so I'm going to do everything I can to protect you spiritually is why he's writing here. Now, contrast that to what we've seen, unfortunately, in Christian circles uh, play out where those uh, people in leadership have used their leadership positions to abuse people, not to protect people. Now, I want you to listen to this clearly, all right? So if you're listening, say amen. Whatever measure of leadership that God has entrusted you with, you have a responsibility before God to use your influence to protect those who are vulnerable under your leadership. Here in chapter 11, Paul is using his godly influence to protect these immature Corinthian believers who are vulnerable from the impressive uh, on the outside but rotten on the inside false teachers. They finally see that term used. We've been using that term and we see it here used, these super apostles. They were so impressive on the outside. They were the exact opposite of Paul. Remember the description of Paul from last week? Not a looker, right? Not impressive at all. And Paul says, I'm not impressive in speech, but I am uh, in knowledge. And so Paul is using this deep love for them to protect them. And Paul uses a word to describe the type of love he has for them in a word that has a negative connotation that we don't think we would associate with love. And the word here uh, is jealousy. Love is self-sacrificing for someone else for their benefit, but jealousy is controlling or trying to control someone else for your benefit. But that's the word he uses here uh, in verse 2. Look at it again. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so Paul, what he's modeling here, mimicking, uh, is the jealousy of God. One of the attributes of God that we often don't talk about, because that's a negative connotation, is that God is a jealous God. He desires our deep devotion, uh, but there's in chapter and verse 2, there's some context clues here to, that tell us this is a good jealousy. That this is not the controlling kind that we talk about or try to avoid. This is a good jealousy that I long for your devotion, not for my benefit, but because I love you and I want to come alongside of you and ultimately uh, to protect you. Now, in the Jewish tradition uh, that Paul would have uh, experienced and was raised in, it was the obligation of a father uh, to do the best of his abilities to protect the chastity of his daughter. And so Paul here says, I I'm kind of feeling like a dad. Like I've done everything I could do to protect you spiritually. And then here these guys come in and they're impressive on the outside. They're wicked on the inside, but they're impressive on the outside. And all of a sudden, all this protection I've had for your benefit, now you're being swayed over and deceived uh, here on the eve of your wedding. And so Paul is painting a picture that the Corinthian church is the bride. It's one of the descriptors of the church in the Bible. It's the bride. And Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And you know what Paul is? Paul is the father of the bride, which is one of the greatest movies ever produced. Amen? And he says, I care so deeply for you. I'm jealous for your devotion, but it's not a controlling jealousy. It's a jealousy motivated by love because I genuinely want to protect you from all this false teaching that's your being uh, deceived 
by. He cares deeply for them and states his purpose. Why is he so jealous for their devotion, for their affection? We don't have to wonder. Look at verse 3. Here's why. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so there's Paul's motive. He says, yes, unashamedly, I am jealous for your devotion and for your affection, uh, verse 2, but here's the the reason. It's because in verse 3, I'm so worried about you that if I can just get you to return back and listen to me and, and be convinced that I love you, then I can protect you as a father from all this false teaching uh, that's going on. Paul's motivation in warning them about these false teachers, it's not to make them look bad and make himself look good. It's 100% to protect them, to deepen their devotion to Christ when these false teachers or super apostles were leading people away from Christ and their devotion was to themselves, all right? So here's what I want you to understand about a godly leader. Godly leaders are always pointing others to Christ, not themselves. Godly leaders are always using whatever influence, whatever platform, whatever speak, whatever the opportunities they have to lead, they're always pointing people to Christ and not to themselves. Godly leaders, we know this, well, that Scripture tells us that they know that Jesus is the model, not the leader. Jesus is the wisdom of God, not the leader. Jesus is the one who can change hearts, not a leader. Uh, Jesus is uh, who people should seek refuge in, not the leader. Jesus can satisfy hearts, not the leader. Jesus is the one who should get all the credit, and he should be exalted, not the leader. Godly leaders are always pointing others to Christ, not to themselves. And that's essential, remember, because the natural drift of my heart, the natural drift of your heart, is to do the exact opposite. It's to long for some exaltation. It's to long for some kind of adoration from people. That's where our hearts are pointed. Paul Tripp has this quote he says. He says, our, all of our hearts are hardwired to be glory thieves. That there is this thing inside of all of us, our sin nature, that somehow says, yes, I, I want to point people to Jesus, but it wouldn't be a terrible thing if I got a little credit along the way, Right? It would be a terrible thing if people said, look, Jesus is great, and so is you or me or fill in the blank, right? That leader, those things. And that is a dangerous place to be. But the reason that a godly leader wants to protect people is so he can protect their sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's writing. He says, hey, I'm jealous for your affections, verse 2, because I want to make sure that you're being pointed to a sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. Instead of away from Christ, verse 3, and then he goes on, look at verse 4. He says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, listen to this, you put up with it readily enough. Now, I want you to just pause here for a second because I want to pull this out of the text. Notice here when he says, hey, you, you did these things and you're deceived and I want to protect you and that's part of my job, it's my, part of my motive as a leader. But then he does say something at the end of verse four. What does he say? He says, you put up with it readily enough. And so what do we learn from this? Uh, what we learn is this. Part of protecting other people spiritually is accountability. 
Love is not the absence of accountability. Over the years, I've had a couple of conversations with parents. You know, I've got some parenting theories. What's the old joke? I would certainly subscribe to it. When I was young, I had no kids and four theories on parenting. Now I've got four kids and no theories. Amen? Like all out the window. But over the years, people have come and said, hey, I've got some questions about parenting. I've got some of this, and my kids are walking through this, and they got you know, caught doing this, or we, you know, the, whatever the fill-in-the-blank is. And, and one of the most difficult things to navigate uh, with a parent is a parent whose default is deeply convinced that, in fact, their child does not have a sin nature. You ever heard this from a parent? My kid would never do that. Parents, listen, your kid's a little sinner. Amen? They do all that and then some. And they just just can't bear the thought of holding their child accountable, but love is not the absence of accountability. Paul says right here, he says, hey, you got deceived by these things, but at the end, he's offering them some accountability. He said, you put up with it. You endured it. You listened to it. You said amen when those guys were preaching. Now, we're not exactly told what, what this different gospel was. We're not exactly told the details about it, but if you study church history, uh, you'll know that in every period of church history uh, is marked by a movement of false teachers who either deny the content of the gospel, uh, the scope of the gospel, the effects of the gospel, and godly leaders will not, cannot sit by silently under the banner of unity for the sake of protecting others. Godly leaders protect other people spiritually. Parents, as leaders in your home, God has ultimately not called you just to be a friend to your child. He's called you to lead them spiritually. And sometimes that means encouraging them, and sometimes it means warning them and offering discernment. Because godly leaders are going to take that leadership, they're going to use it to protect others spiritually. But not only do they do that, what else we see in this passage is this, is that godly leaders live sacrificially for others. If you're a parent or a grandparent, I'm going to tell you something. Did you know it's expensive to have kids and grandkids? Did you know, did you wear that? If you ever look up and get on Google and say, what's the cost of raising a child? I would encourage you not to do that because it's discouraging, right? People will sacrifice deeply. It's incredibly expensive. But listen, if you're a parent or grandparent, you understand that built into the equation of loving your children, loving your grandchildren, is sacrifice. Whenever uh, Tosh or my kids send me a text about something they bought or somewhere they went or some restaurant they went, I have a picture saved on my phone that I send back to them in response. And here's what it reads. It's a picture of a sign, and the sign says this. Every dad's dream is to have enough money to live the kind of life his wife and kids do. Dads, can I get an amen? <laughs> Tom, Tasha texted me lunch. Hey, what are you doing? I'm at my desk eating Greek yogurt, $1.79 at Kroger. Where are you guys at? Oh, we just stopped over at Jeff Ruby's real quick, just popped in. One of my oldest kids uh, asked me a while back, my oldest, my daughter said, Dad, does it stink that knowing that most of the money you make goes to other people? And I said, no, honey, it's a great joy. It's a delight. <laughs> Whenever I make comments about that, Tasha reminds me of my old car hobby, the cost of that, and I remind her of Ephesians 5, praise God. Amen? I don't. 
That was a joke. Don't make me sleep outside again. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> but in all seriousness, one of the marks of a godly leader is a willingness to self-sacrifice for the sake of those that you're leading. Verse 7 Paul leaves no doubt that that's his desire. He starts off in verse 7 with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 7. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Do you see what Paul said? Paul said, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice my own comfort, my own reputation, my own financial remuneration so that I can be humbled with the sole motivation that in that self-sacrificing humility, you might be exalted. One of my favorite definitions of a humble person is it's not someone who thinks uh, less of themselves, that's self-abasement. A humble person just thinks of themselves less often. And that's what Paul's modeling here. Now, contrast that today uh, with pastors who are using their church uh, to build a platform and a brand for themselves instead of obeying God and leaving all the consequences to him. Listen, leader, that's everybody in the room, your job is to self-sacrifice, not for your own glory, but for the sake of those you're leading. That's what Paul's modeling here. In verse 7, He says, I'm not living for my own promotion. I'm humbling myself so that you, through that sacrifice, might be uh, exalted. Now, in verses 7 through 11, uh, it's an interesting passage. I learned some things this week. Uh, In verses 7 through 11, uh, basically, Paul's responding to some criticisms. Because remember there, you're just getting all kinds of criticism. You know, you're not like these super apostles, you know, you're this, you're that. And so Paul's defending his leadership, his apostleship. And verses 7 through 11, he's specifically responding to their criticism for not accepting any financial payment for his ministry. Now, that's odd, is it not? It's a little strange because, listen, who gets mad at a pastor that wants to work for free? Amen? Like, they should be celebrating. Like, this guy's the greatest, and he won't take a single So what's going on uh, in this text? Well, two things. Number one, uh, first, they were probably offended that Paul would not accept uh, any of their financial assistance to to the point where he said, you know what, I'm not taking your money to the point I'm going to support myself through tent making. Uh, They regarded that as degrading work for an apostle. And so that if you're truly an apostle, uh, that's just degrading and it's kind of uh, embarrassing. And then secondly, Uh, This refusal to accept their money uh, would have been construed as to them, like, I I don't even love you. Listen, it would be the equivalent of us saying to someone today that I'm so disgusted with you, I don't even want your money. I don't even want your money. And down at verse 11, uh, look what he says. He says, and why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. Now, at the risk of sounding self-serving, this is not a a passage defending the practice of churches refusing to pay pastors. There are some churches that teach that, and they would use that. Uh, This is a proof text. But the problem with that stance is this, is if you just keep reading, in verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about his willingness to accept financial offerings from the Macedonian Christians. And what's even more interesting is this, is that the church at Corinth uh, would have been a a center of commerce, they would have had wealthy leaders, and the Macedonians were much more impoverished. 
And so Paul says, hey, you've got money. I, I, I'm not going to take your money. And these Macedonians who are living in, in a much lower socioeconomic level, he says, I will cash your check if you want to give it. That's what he's saying here. So why is that? Well, what exactly is going on? Here's what's happening in this passage. Paul wants to distinguish himself from these super apostles or false teachers uh, who weren't preaching and leading to, to exalt Jesus. They're preaching and leading to exalt themselves and to make their wallets fat. Paul's ministry is being deeply criticized on every single level. And so Paul says, hey, I, I don't want to give you one more thing to try and criticize me about. So in an effort to love you well, I'm going to self-sacrifice by the fact that all of this ministry that I've been doing, all this writing back, all this pouring out on your behalf, I'm not even going to take a dollar for it so that no one can question my love for you. One writer said this, he said, Paul here is literally modeling the servanthood of Christ who made himself poor so that others might become rich. And so I want you to understand this this morning. The call to lead people is a call to love people. The call to lead people, and you're a leader, the call to lead people is a call to love people, and love ultimately is a decision, not an emotion, it's a decision to self-sacrifice. A pastor's been granted a measure of leadership in a church, and the late preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this statement. He said, to love to preach is one thing, but to love those whom we preach to is quite another. Why did he say that? Because listen, if you're not careful, the motivation in preaching can be yourself. It can be exalt yourself, to build a brand for yourself, to build a platform for yourself. Say, look, all, you know, the people are coming and listen to me, and look at this, and look at all these things I'm getting to do. He says, but no, the whole reason God's placed you into leadership is to self-sacrifice, to humble yourself so that you can exalt others and live sacrificially on their behalf. And so here's what Paul said. Paul said, hey, I don't want you to have any questions. I don't want there to be any questions about whether or not I've been willing to self-sacrifice on your behalf, so much so that I'm not going to take your money, even though I took money from the Macedonian church who were impoverished. And so what do we see in that? We see that a godly leader self-sacrifices on behalf of others. Find a leader who will not self-sacrifice for others, and I'll show you a person who loves, loves being a leader and doesn't love the people he's leading. And so what is the third thing we see in this passage? Third thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is that godly leaders are bold for the sake of others. Now, hopefully by this third point here in the message, uh, you're seeing a pattern. That the pattern of a godly leader, his motive, his desire to lead, is not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. He doesn't want to lead because he simply wants to be in charge he doesn't want to lead because he's esteemed. He doesn't lead because he wants people to follow him. He doesn't want to lead because all the accolades, those things. A godly leader wants to lead, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of others. And so part of that is being bold for the sake of others in discernment. Look at verses 12 through 15. He says, and what, what I am doing, I'll continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, 
they work on the same terms as we do. Look at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then verse 15 is the crescendo, and it may be one of the most shocking verses of the entire New Testament. Look what he says in verse 15. So it is no surprise if his, Satan's, servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul loves them deeply. He's willing to self-sacrifice for them as a display of his love. He's willing to not take any money so another one questions his motive of love. Paul's willing to do all these things out of deep love, but make no mistakes. Uh, in his motive to love, he's not a doormat. He's saying, hey, one of the things that I have to do because I love you is to be willing to speak up boldly when it comes to false teaching, to warn you when you lack discernment. In, look at the descriptors in verse 13. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's strong. Listen, if, if you got invited to lead in some context at church, and after leading for a little bit, someone said, hey, I, I know you got a new leader over there, leader over guest services, or leader over group, or leader over something, and someone said, what do you know about them? And they said, deceitful workmen, not a compliment, all right? These are strong words. And so sometimes what we're deceived into thinking is that love always keeps its mouth shut for the sake of unity. Listen, love is required to speak up about truth. The word in the original language for false apostle, it's only used one time in the entire Bible, and it's right here. The word is pseudo-apostolos, pseudo-apostle, and it literally means bogus apostle or false ambassador. And so Paul makes no bones about it. He says, these guys are bogus. These guys, in fact, what he's saying in verse 14 and 15, these guys are, are not even on our team. They're playing on the other team. Uh, according to verse 15, uh, there are people in Christian ministry who are actually, in fact, working for the enemy. Go back and look what he says in verse 15. It's no surprise if his, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so Paul says, hey, I love you. And so as a result of that, I, I've got to be bold. And what we're tempted to think is it that, that false teaching is, is out here uh, in the open? What we're tempted to think is, how in the world could these people be so deceived? If we're honest, what we often think is that false teachers get up in the pulpit with a red cape on and a pitchfork in their hand, right? And throughout this letter, it's been clear that the Corinthians are on the verge of yielding their loyalties to false teaching. That's the reason Paul is writing and one commentator said this, he said, we have to understand how alluring and enticing the opposition must have been to deceive these people. It goes on to say, uh, the message from the false teachers sounded appetizing, listen to this, because false teachers reinforce what people already want to be true and they sprinkle in just enough Bible to make it sound convincing. 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, listen to this, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Do you get that? They're not openly teaching and saying, hey, just so we're clear today, what I'm teaching is leading people to hell. Just so we're clear today, what I'm teaching is pointing people away from Jesus Christ. That's not how it works here. What it says there is they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Uh, Over the last, I don't know how many years, uh, there's a cultural phenomenon that's been happening, playing out in culture. You've seen it. I've seen it. Uh, It's something called cancel culture. Where someone makes any kind of mistake and you just wash your hands of them and that, that's it, we've canceled them. They no longer have an opportunity, they can no longer have a, a, a platform, they can no longer speak about anything. We've just canceled them totally. They don't even exist uh, in cancel culture. Now, I, I'm not a fan of cancel culture because I believe in restorative grace that leads out of repentance. But one of the things that, that's happened is that cancel culture mentality has crept into the church And what happens is this, uh, is anybody who teaches anything that we disagree on, they're now quickly labeled as a false teacher or a heretic. So I wish we had time to fully develop a a list of attributes that the Bible, uh, you know, describes these false teachers with, but an effort to grow our discernment, I just want to look at a few things with the hopes of warning what false teacher does. So here's three things from Scripture to look for in a, in a true false teacher. Not someone who says, hey, I, I disagree with you on the timing of the second coming. I always knew you were a heretic. Hey, we view the role of women in church a little different. You're a false teacher, right? That, that's kind of where we are. And so what does a false teacher, how are they described in Scripture? So let me give you three things uh, this morning. Number one, false teachers are man pleasers. Paul literally describes them in another letter as ear ticklers. They have a great skill in learning what other people want to hear, and they give that to them. Instead of exposing sin, they affirm sin, they coddle sin, and are ear ticklers. John MacArthur says the creed of the false prophet, if he has any at all, will be vague, indefinite, and ethereal. No demanding truth will be absolute or clear-cut, and every principle they teach will be easy and attractive. And so as a result of that, they they gain an audience for themselves, for their own sake, and not for the sake of Christ. Now, lest we're tempted to think this is a new phenomenon, listen to John Calvin, 16th century theologian. Listen to what he said. The preachers of the gospel have also their courtesy and their pleasing manner, but joined with honesty so that they neither soothe men with vain praises nor flatter their vices, but imposters, listen to this, imposters allure men by flattery and spare and indulge their vices that they may keep them attached to themselves. What what does it mean in plain English? What it means is this. They're gonna say whatever people wanna hear so they can grow a fan club. And so one of the marks of a true false teacher is that they're seeking to please man and Christ with their teaching. The second thing is a false teacher serves their own appetites. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul wrote that false teachers serve their own bellies. In other words, the lifestyle of a false teacher often reflects indulgence and egocentrism. Now, Christian teachers aren't 
prohibited from having anything nice or enjoying nice things or doing those things. But one of the marks of a true false teacher is lavish lifestyles of greed. That's right in the Scripture. And so any time that, that someone's preaching a prosperity gospel, health and wealth, name it and claim it, grab it and blab it, like whatever you, whatever you call all that that's on TV, right? Anytime someone's promoting that and exalting their wealth as a sign of God's blessing, mark it down. That is a mark from Scripture of a false teacher. And that's a dangerous thing for me to say, because I know that so I'm walking out and I'm driving out today. Some of you looking, like, you know, look at that 2010 and Katie's driving. 211,000 miles. Who does he think he is? <laughs> I repent of that. I'm sorry. Yes, I do drive. But the scripture says this in 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to verse 3. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. False teachers, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. Same chapter, verse 14. They commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they're well trained in greed. They live under God's curse. Verse 15, they have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor. Listen to this, who love to earn money by doing wrong. And so when you see a godly spiritual leader living a lavish lifestyle from the scriptures, that is a mark of a false teacher. And the third thing they do is this, false teachers deny the exclusivity of the gospel. One commentator said this, he said, the creed of false prophets never preaches a narrow gate or narrow way. On the surface, their message may sound difficult or demanding, but it always rests on the foundation of man's works and will therefore always be accomplished by man's effort. They never reveal the depth or danger of sin. They never talk about the need for repentance or forgiveness. They never talk about living submissively to the Lord. They never talk about the destiny of judgment and condemnation or eternal destruction from those apart from the Lord. That's so what Paul say. Paul says, hey, I love you. But in my love for you as a godly leader, I'm going to warn you that these people are preaching another gospel and it's another Jesus and, a, and it's another spirit from the one that you've already heard you've been saved by. And so in my deep love for you, I'm willing to, to sound the warning and offer some discernment. These are deceitful workers. These, these guys are batting for the other team. And so what love requires us to do in godly leadership is to speak up even when it's uncomfortable on behalf of others because we love them too much to watch them be led astray. You ever drive around certain communities, they have little signs up that say, hey, if you see something, say something. You know what Paul's saying here and modeling for us here? Hey, if you see something, say something. Folks, which is the better friend? The one who's standing at the edge of the cliff and as you drive off the edge of the cliff, they look at you and go, that's a real shame, I love them. <laughs> I don't need friends like that. No, 
who the godly friend is? They're standing at the edge of the cliff as you approach, waving their arms, turn back, there's danger, turn back. And so Paul says, godly leaders, they're bold in speaking up for truth. They're living with deep convictional kindness, not so people can look at them and go, look how smart they are, look how wise they are, look how bold they are. Paul says, I'm doing it because I love you. Book of Proverbs talks about the willingness to speak hard truths in other people's lives. You know what it says? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so false teachers will speak up and against anyone who denies the exclusivity of the gospel. And so church, let me just make it clear and discharge my duty as a leader here at our church about the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, we live in a world of relative truth and political correctness, but let me just make sure everybody here today understands. Uh, John 14, 6 is still true. Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so that's, that's a strong Word. Listen, here's a stronger one. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 says, If anyone preaches another gospel, even an angel, let him be accursed. And so sometimes, in an effort to love people well, you've got to speak up boldly for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing could be fairer than the gospel of Jesus. Everyone is welcome. Everyone gets in the same way, and everyone can meet the entrance requirements. And here's the good news. Today, even though millions have come, there is still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you the most important question anyone could ever ask you in your life. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Is there a time or a place or a season in your life where you became deeply convicted by your sin and you became fully convinced that Jesus Christ died on the cross, his payment for your sins was buried and rose the third day and you received him? for the forgiveness of your sins. If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then right you're at, right in your seat this morning, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you confess your sins, express to God a desire to turn from those sins and receive Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior? For those of you who have done that, I wanna ask you a couple questions. Whatever sphere of influence you have, are you using that to protect people who are vulnerable? Are you willing to self-sacrifice on behalf of others? Are you willing to speak up to warn others? And here this morning, I wonder if there aren't some people in the room who are sitting on a hard conversation with someone else because out of fear of what it's going to do to that relationship. You know what that person's doing wrong? You know it's going to hurt them, it's going to hurt others? 
And so you're sitting on a conversation. Can I remind you today that love and leadership is a willingness to be bold? And so if that's you today, would you just, would you just pray very specifically right now? Would you say, Lord, God, grow my love for this person where it casts out my fear of the conversation. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. And so, Lord, I'm anxious about it. I don't want to have this conversation. It's going to be awkward. It may sever our friendship, our relationship. But, Lord, help me, compelled by love, to speak up into their life, to stand at the edge of the cliff and sound a warning. They're going down the wrong road. Would you pray this week that God would empower you to do that very thing? Father, I pray that all of us would take serious what it looks like to lead others, that all of us would be willing to self-sacrifice on behalf of others, that we would use our influence to protect others who are vulnerable, and that, God, we would speak up about the truth for those who have strayed from it. And so, Lord, may we do it all of that in a way that points people to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to do that very thing, to live that way this week for your glory and for the good of others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.